the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. President Trump, uh, upon getting notice that uh, charges against General Flynn had been dropped by the Department of Justice yesterday, had this to say. He is a uh, great gentleman. He was targeted by the Obama administration, and he was targeted in order to try and take down a president. And what they've done is a disgrace, and I hope a big price is going to be paid. A big price should be paid. There's never been anything like this in the history of our country. What they did, what the Obama administration did, is uh, unprecedented. It's never happened. Never happened. A thing like this has never happened before in the history of our country. And I hope a lot of people are going to pay a big price because they're dishonest, crooked people. They're scum, and I say it a lot. They're scum. They're human scum. This should never have happened in this country. They got caught. They got caught. Very dishonest people. But much more than dishonest. It's treason. It's treason. The T word has been called. He also talked about uh, the media as the complicit partner, the accomplice to the scum. The media and the scum working together. Or maybe they're one and the same. Oh, the people should pay a big price for what they've done to this country. They should pay a big price. And uh, their partner, very complicit, is a thing called the media. The media is totally guilty. And all of those writers and so-called journalists, they're not journalists, they're thieves. All of those journalists that received a Pulitzer Prize should be forced to give those Pulitzer Prizes back because they were all wrong. All right, the scum and the thieves working together. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Kevin Brock. He is a former assistant director of Intel for the FBI. He is also a principal deputy director for the National Counterterrorism Center. And I should mention he spent 24 years as a special agent for the FBI, in addition to being the former assistant director of intelligence. Kevin, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, it's my pleasure. Um, obviously, Attorney General Barr was a little bit more measured on the topic and uh, focused on the law, but the president gave a little bit more color and a characterization of the FBI. Well, the senior leadership of the FBI, I think he was talking about uh, the Mueller team as well, and then, of course, the media. How, how do you react to what the president said? He does have a way with words. Indeed, he, indeed he does. Human yes. scum. Thieves yeah, and scum. More than a little New York in there. It is a uh, proper decision. And there's two parts to this, and I kind of addressed that in the article I wrote this week, and that is, number one, the legal aspect, and Barr does a good job in his dismissal of pointing it out that this, and he uses the word untethered, it was untethered to any facts that 
allowed the FBI agents to be in that office interviewing General Flynn that day in the White House on January 24th, 2017. And that is a key. It's one of the first rules that an FBI agent learns when they uh, become an agent in training in Quantico is you can't go out and interview somebody unless you have a legal basis to do so and you can articulate reasonable suspicion that a crime has been committed. But not only did they not have a reason to interview him, they never had a sufficient reason to open up a counterintelligence case against him in the first part mm-hmm. of the place. And that's been pretty well established now. So where the American people need to be aghast is that the FBI could be uh, used in such a way. The second part of this is, and I think there's more investigation to be done by those that Attorney General Barr has asked to look into all of these matters, the whole Russia collusion matter, and specifically the case against Flynn, is whether or not the FBI was directed to or asked to interview Flynn at the behest of the White House because of a fundamental policy difference between the incoming administration and the outgoing administration. And that was the sanctions against Russia in reaction to election interference that President Obama placed on them, and then a secondary issue regarding settlements in Israel. So if you read Peter Strzok's 302, it really just addresses policy differences. It doesn't address any material criminal or counterintelligence reason. And so why did they do it? Was it at the behest of the White House, or was it because of their own personal animus and biases that made them decide to target General Flynn for a confrontational interview. The top line is there was no basis for the entire counterintel investigation. Thus, there was no basis to uh, interview Flynn. You uh, write in your piece that um, they did not have a legitimate justification to investigate an American citizen, which is exactly what Barr had said. In addition to that, you have the issue of the entire basis of the Mueller investigation, because we find there was no evidence of any Russian collusion either. That's restated again, including with the statements of former senior Obama administration officials. That's correct. So Mueller is folded into this too. Yeah, because as we all know that Mueller picked up the existing FBI counterintelligence investigation, codenamed Crossfire Hurricane. He subsumed that into the special counsel effort and was directed to in the memo written by Rod Rosenstein back in May of 2017 now. So, yeah, that was that was all part and parcel to the special counsel investigation. Myself and others have written about this for two years, that Mueller had no, no legitimate counterintelligence predication on which to continue the uh, investigation since none existed in the first place. And that's been borne out. So uh, Barr was asked about consequences by Catherine Herridge, and he said basically, look, we still have the Durham report just because something is unfair or looks inappropriate, was inappropriate. That's not the same thing as saying it's illegal. So he's obviously holding his powder until the Durham investigation is complete, which makes eminent sense. But uh, for forgetting the legal consequences, I, I know there's a great desire to, to see Comey and Brennan and others in jail, and let's let the Durham investigation play out. Talk about the consequences in terms of the status of the FBI as somebody who held a senior post there, was there for more than two decades. Uh, consequences yeah. for the FBI, consequences for law enforcement, consequences for trust in federal government. Talk about those consequences. I will. And uh, let me make one very quick comment on what you just said about le- legal uh, distinctions here. Uh, what Durham's going to likely find was a, a, a massive breach of policy 
uh, violations against the attorney general guidelines, which don't which don't necessarily carry a criminal penalty. Mm-hmm. Where I think you're going to see some of the legal uh, peril uh, jeopardy attach is when it, it comes down to examining the use of the FISA and and any um, perjurous statements that were made by whomever and directed by whomever uh, to get to get that warrant to eavesdrop on Carter Page. So, uh, but. To your larger question on uh, impact on the FBI, uh, the, the president is exactly right. And I was actually talking to uh, John Solomon about this yesterday in that podcast, that this is, particularly if it can be termi- determined that the FBI, for purely political reasons, uh, took these actions, this is a monumental inflection point for the FBI, uh, similar to 9-11, where, where it was determined that the FBI and other government agencies were woefully un- unprepared and uncoordinated for a major terrorism attack. This is more of an internal attack. This is a, a, an, a, uh, an internal disease or corruption that has to be confronted. We, ne- we can never allow the FBI to be used in this manner uh, from external forces or internally people with authority inside the FBI misusing the FBI for politically tainted reasons, biased reasons, or motivated reasons. Uh, We've never seen anything like even approaching this in the history of the FBI. And and, uh, current FBI leadership is going to have to uh, enact those reforms to make sure it never happens again. And do Christopher, Uh, do FBI Director Christopher Wray's proposed uh, reforms, do they go far enough to uh, establish, reestablish confidence in the FBI? They, They don't for me. Well, not what we know publicly. We know that he, he he has stated that he has enacted 40 separate reforms inside the FBI. We don't know what they all look like. We know one major one that he announced publicly, and that is never again will an investigation be run out of FBI headquarters, which should be back in the field where it belongs. Um, but he said there's 40 other reforms. I I would advise him to be as transparent as possible on those to start start. Uh, you know, reclaiming some of the American people's trust in the FBI. Uh, again, we, we, I and others, we need to draw the distinction that this was a small subset of, of people at the leadership of the FBI. I, I analogize it to a COVID virus. It was an infection of the FBI. Uh, the FBI is on ventilator right now and needs to be re- rehabilitated to get back off and regain the trust of the, of the American people. He is Kevin Brock, former assistant director of intelligence for the FBI, was an FBI special agent for 24 years and principal deputy director of the National Counterterrorism Center as well. Kevin, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, we uh, move from someone who shouldn't have been prosecuted at the federal level, that being General Flynn, to someone who shouldn't have been prosecuted at the uh, state slash local level, and that would be. Shelley Luther, the hair salon owner from Dallas. Well, 
after uh, all the attention that was uh, focused on her with her uh, defiance against uh, the uh, county judge in the case of her violating a county order to open her business, uh, the opening her business was violative. Uh, Governor uh, Abbott and well as Attorney General Ken Paxton in Texas uh, stepped in. Governor Abbott uh, amending the executive order under which she was originally sentenced, uh, saying throwing Texas in jail who've had their businesses shut down through no fault of their own is nonsensical and I will not allow it to happen. That's why I'm modifying my executive orders to ensure confinement is not a punishment for violating an order. Well, I, it's the right thing to do. It should have been more circumspect at the outset of the drafting, and that should have never been included in the executive order. But uh, just to reframe, uh, here's um, what uh, uh, Shelley Luther uh, was subjected to when she appeared before a uh, Obama acolyte on the bench. Danny. I don't know why he called her Danny. There's a lot of uh, badness in the world today. I see it in court every day. I've sentenced boys younger than you to the gas chamber. Didn't want to do it until I owed it to them. I think we can laugh now that uh, she's been sprung from prison. uh, But uh, here's what she actually said, if you remember, that drew so much national attention and also resulted in $500,000 being donated from the, the world over for uh, her hair salon and her business. Judge, I would like to say that I have much respect for this court and laws and that I've never been been in this position before and it's not some place that I want to be. But I have to disagree with you, sir, when when you say that I'm selfish because feeding my kids is not selfish. I have hairstylists that are going hungry because they'd rather feed their kids. So, sir, if you think the law is more important than kids getting fed, then please go ahead with your decision. But I am not going to shut the salon. Mm. And uh, uh, Shelley Luther, after being sprung, made time to appear on our friend Sean Hannity's program last evening, responding to the fact that uh, the governor interceded on her behalf and got her released. And she really didn't spend any time with respect to the judge, even though the thing that galled people, myself included, was his demand that she apologize to the county officials that uh, instituted the business closure that she, uh, as she mentioned, you know, apologize for being selfish with respect to her neighbors and the community, uh, nothing of the sort. Uh, Shelley Luther focused uh, her attention on the uh, county official that is relevant here because that's where the order from where from when. From, from, from whence the order was handed down. Uh, here's Shelley Luther saying she couldn't bring herself to apologize. Um, that was the last thing I was going to do, honestly, because the way that he has acted during this entire thing is just ridiculous. So um, I, I just couldn't. I couldn't bring myself to apologize. And the he, again, the county official. And this is important context to the decision Shelley made to open. You know, this is real world decisions that uh, so many politicians and elites don't have to make. Um, And when he finally pushed it back a final time, I just said I just woke up one day and I said, I have to open my stylists are calling me. They're not making their mortgage. I was at at right now. I still am not caught up. I'm two months behind on my mortgage. Um, And my stylists were telling me that they wanted to, you know, what do you think if I go underground and go to people's houses and I just said, you know, that's not a good idea because we can't control the environment there. We, we don't know 
if it's been disinfected or anything like that. And I just decided I would open to create a safe place for the stylists and uh, to make sure that I wasn't the reason they weren't making money. Uh, This is a key point as well. The responsible way in which she reopened her salon, a point that I've been making for weeks now, which is that the reopening and the resumption of civil society will be driven by employers in consultation and collaboration with their employees. At some point, you're going to have to trust the American people if you want to live in a free society. You're going to have to trust yourself if you want to live a real life more than just a biological existence. It's not going to be implemented by county commissioners or governors or congressmen or even the president. It's going to be implemented on the micro level by employers and employees in a particular communities. And that's what Shelley Luther was trying to do responsibly. We shouldn't trust Shelley Luther and her stylists. I had no clients waiting inside the salon at all. So I had chairs sit um, six feet apart outside of the salon. So we had no one waiting. Um, and when a stylist was ready, wearing a mask, of course, we didn't let any um, clients come in without a mask. They instantly sanitized their hands. The hairstylist sanitized their hands. Um, they came in, they did the cut, and that person left. Um, and With so a mask on, I, there I were no magazines in there, no drinks. Let me oh, ask of you course, this. yeah, everybody had to wear a mask to come in. So the personal protective equipment and making it a, a hospitable and comfortable place for the people that came in to get their hair cut rather than doing one-off black market where, as she said, you can't control the environment. Now, contrast that behavior, responsible behavior, with, uh, say, what governments are doing. L.A. City Council voting to identify hotels refusing to house the homeless, suggesting that if hotels in L.A. refuse to house the homeless, as part of the city's goal to house 15,000 homeless people through the project they've initiated, then the hotel's private property should be commandeered, commandeered by the city. Hmm. Uh, or in San Francisco. San Francisco Health Department throwing quite the rager for homeless. San Francisco Health Department confirms it is providing alcohol, weed, nicotine, and other substances to the homeless they are housing in hotels during coronavirus quarantine. Um, We're supposed to defer and uh, suffer, uh, willingly suffer, uh, with respect to our businesses, our livelihoods, our lives, our our health, in terms of uh, elective surgeries, in terms of fear of going into a hospital setting, even if I need that chemotherapy treatment, even if I uh, need this checkup, even if I need this procedure. Um while governments at every level are infringing on people's private property rights and uh, using our resources to have a good old time with homeless people on other people's property. That's that well with you? You're worried about uh, Shelley Luther opening her hair salon in Dallas. That's the problem. You're worrying about the barber I spoke about yesterday, the 77-year-old barber in upstate Michigan, that wants to open his barbershop because he needs to get back to work to keep his barbershop if he's going to have one on the other side. Yeah. Uh, good piece, actually. I'll tweet out at Dan Prof Show, time.com of all places, with just vignettes of different people who are suffering financial ruin. 
no income, major medical bills, what life is like for millions of Americans facing financial ruin because of the pandemic, which we knew would come, but we weren't allowed to contemplate. Well, now all of a sudden, you can't ignore the stories anymore, can you? Not with 20 and a half million people unemployed and the prospects that it will be many millions more before the month is out. This is Dan Proff. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Tara Reid, the woman who accused Joe Biden of sexually assaulting her when she was a Biden Senate staffer back in the early 90s, sat down with Megyn Kelly on her interview show yesterday and had this to say about uh, her treatment by those uh, otherwise grand defenders of women and protectors of those who have been uh, uh, alleged even to have been victimized at the hands of uh, male predators. He did say that in his view, accusers should start off with the presumption that they're telling the truth. Do you think he's afforded you that presumption? No. I mean, it's been stunning, actually, how the the... Some of his surrogates with the blue checks, you know, that are his surrogates have been saying really horrible things about me and to me on social media. Um, He hasn't himself, but there is a measure of hypocrisy with the campaign saying it's safe. It's not been safe. You know, all my social media has been hacked. All my personal information has been dragged through. Every person that maybe has a, you know, a gripe against me, an ex-boyfriend or an ex-landlord or whatever it is, has been able to have a platform rather than me. Um, talking about things that have nothing to do with 1993, like even the whole thing with being called a Russian agent, that in particular, um, that incites people. People actually, I got a death threat from that because they thought I was being a traitor to America. And I mean, these are serious things. Like, And his campaign is taking this position that they want all women to be able to speak safely. I have not experienced that. Don't you love the Russian agent accusation? Uh, Is she working in concert with Tulsi Gabbard by any chance? Uh, Reid went on to uh, call for Joe Biden to withdraw. I want to say you and I were there, Joe Biden. Please step forward and be held accountable. You should not be running on character for the president of the United States. You want him to withdraw? I wish he would, but he won't. But I wish he would. That's how I feel emotionally. Do you want an apology? I think it's a little late. I'd say. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by David Harsani, senior writer for National Review and author of First Freedom, A Ride Through America's Enduring History with the Gun, From the Revolution to Today. Uh, David, in addition to uh, that interview, a new piece of uh, information came out, a California newspaper reporting that from a 1996 court filing by her ex-husband in response to her seeking a restraining order against him, he referenced the fact that she had told him that she had a sexual harassment matter in Joe Biden's Senate office that she was dealing with. So, again, that doesn't prove that she was sexually harassed or assaulted, but it does prove that there were contemporaneous statements made by her uh, with respect to the accusation she levels now some uh, two decades later. Right. I think the number now of contemporaneous statements or near contemporaneous statements are up to like six or seven people. 
discounting her mother who called Larry King alive, which makes her far more credible uh, than, Bla- than uh, Blasey Ford was when uh, when we were told to, you know, believe everything she said simply because she said it. So to me and for me, and I, I suspect you're the same. Is like I don't contend that I know what happened, but I do contend that there is a an untenable double standard here where one side is asked to live by a certain set of rules and the other side doesn't have to ever live by them. They're just massive, uh, ugly, and transparent hypocrites. And uh, and I think that needs to constantly be pointed out. And it starts at the top, um, even uh, more disquieting than Joe Biden's consistent use of the word intercourse where it's inappropriate, uh, is uh, Joe Biden saying, due process for me, but not for any other these when it comes to Title IX and the rules promulgated this week by Betsy DeVos uh, that Joe Biden said would be one of his first acts as president to rescind. Right. It is That is the worst part of this because the college students who are, uh, you know, put up on these show trials basically where if they use the Obama standards and now the Biden standards, they, they can't call their own witnesses, face their accuser, um, you know, just a whole bunch of stuff they can't do that are basically the foundations of a fair trial and justice, then, uh, but, but yet he doesn't even have to really answer any questions. He is presumed innocent, they are presumed guilty. And that has real-life consequences for young people who are powerless, unlike him. And, uh, you know, and he doesn't even, no one even asks him about that double standard, as far as I know. It's just something that he is, and, uh, and, and that's shameful. Uh, when I when we come back with uh, David Harsani, I want to get your reaction to some people who are being honest about the double standard. Yes, it's a double standard and we don't care. And they happen to be coming from the feminist movement and the left wing media. More with David Harsani, senior writer for National Review right after this. Fixers and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking about uh, Tara Reid's allegations, uh, Joe Biden's response, and the response of uh, those who are. Uh, uh, all too anxious to moralize about uh, sexual harassment and the Me Too movement and the Time's Up movement and all things associated with male-female interaction when the accused is Brett Kavanaugh and uh, somewhat more resistant to do so when the accused is Joe Biden. Uh, this is a sort of remarkable. I mentioned on a yesterday's show, but it bears repeating. I want to get to David Harsani's uh, reaction to it. A co-founder of The Hill, thehill.com, Martin Tolshin, Uh, arguing against a May 2nd New York Times editorial calling for further investigation of Tara Reid's claims, saying, I totally disagree with this editorial. I don't want an investigation. What I want is a coronation of Joe Biden. I don't want justice, whatever that may be. I want to win the removal of Donald Trump from office. And Mr. Biden is our best chance. I got to tell you, David, I appreciate his candor. Absolutely. Uh, He makes a utilitarian argument for 
for electing the person he believes is best, even if they are imperfect and even if they have done things that are uh, wrong, which is exactly the argument people were making for Donald Trump. Uh, in fact, Donald Trump's argument that people would vote for him, even if he shot someone on Fifth Avenue, is sort of a, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, amped up version of that argument. And uh, I don't I think there are limits to that argument. But I also believe politics is a transactional uh, I mean, it's a transactional relationship for me to some, ex you know, to, to certain extents, obviously, if someone's breaking the law, that's different. But, um, you know, and it is for them. And we all knew this. We knew this from the Clinton years when, when people were making very similar arguments as this uh, about Bill Clinton. And uh, and that's the facts of how people typically vote, I think. Right. I, I understand. I mean, that. But it's one thing to say, look, politics, um, I, I, I make the decision uh, for a particular politician based on, you know, how I think that person is going to be a vehicle for the policy choices I'd like to see made or for what I think would be in my best interest uh, financially, culturally, any other way. It's another thing to say, I know this runs afoul of every everything I say I am and I don't even care. I don't even want to run the analysis. I'm so in I'm I'm you know, I'm indifferent to my own stated moral and um, and, and principle, my, my own stated moral positions and principles. That's sort of a a, a, um, a a new level of being transactional. Absolutely. Absolutely. So if I said I don't really like Donald Trump, but I do like Betsy DeVos and I do like, you know, uh, whoever in the administration, I like the policies. They'll say, how can you vote for such a despicable human being? It's not worth it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But yet that's the argument that these folks are making. And of course, they're just incredible hypocrites because their, their whole stated case against Donald Trump or a big part of it is Donald Trump himself and, his, and, and the things that he's done. But Joe Biden, is, I think not going to be able to make that case very effectively anymore if he doesn't deal with this. And I'm not even sure how he can deal with this issue. I, I, don't, I don't even know how he, he would, could move forward considering the position he's already put himself in. Uh, I wanted to uh, give you the opportunity to react to the arrests of uh, father and son in uh, Georgia with respect to the killing of a 25-year-old gentleman named Amud Arbery. They uh, there's video that uh, emerged uh, uh, showing them chasing him down on the street because they according to them, they believed he was a burglar. Regardless, uh, they have been uh, indicted on murder charges. And uh, you wrote about it Two white men, including a former uh, law enforcement officer, the father and uh, a black man, this 25 year old. And um, I think it's important to, that uh, conservatives in particular cover these cases, I think, because, uh, of course, of the unfair uh, name calling that we're always on the receiving end of um, so that we set a standard for how all such matters sh should be covered. And I think uh, you've done that in your analysis of what happened as far as we know. Well, I'm really turned off by the typical debate on these kinds of shootings because you have half the people, you know, you know reflexively pro cop or, sh or sh just shooter in this case, I guess. And the other half saying, well, you know, the all Black Lives Matter, you know, assuming racism in the worst every time. But I think with the video that was uh, that someone had of the shooting, there's no other way to look at it. At least I look at it this way. I'm not a lawyer, but I think it's just murder. I mean, they had no right to chase a man down a street in that way who they had not seen, as far as we know, commit a crime that they thought might be guilty. And why did they think it? I, I think it's I mean, I'm not going again. I, I, I don't know if they said anything racist, but, you know, they they. 
you have these guys in pickup trucks with gu- a pickup truck with guns chasing a black young black man down the street in the south that's you know something you shouldn't be doing anyway and uh obviously so to me it looks like murder they shot him he was unarmed I, in, in fact i think he would have if he had had a gun and shot them i think he would have been far more justified than they were in shooting him you have no right I'm very pro-gun. I wrote a book about the importance of people being able to own them, and, and you still have no right to brandish them and menace someone walking down the street just because you suspect them of a crime. You're not even a cop. Well, know? right. So that's how I look at it. Right, and 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 to your to your point, um, you don't have a right to use lethal force if you're if you're not under threat. And these uh, two guys were not under threat. They were in a pickup truck chasing him down on the, sus- the suspicion he's a burglar, that if you have that suspicion, that's when you call police, because that's a police matter, not a you matter. Right. And in Georgia law, you can't make a citizen's arrest. I forgot the exact wording. I'm sure you probably know it, but you have to have some sort of immediate knowledge of it or see it. And they, they had neither of those things, as far as we know. Yeah. And, and it's just, you know, and, and unfortunately, I agree with you, too. Like the racialization of everything forces people not doesn't doesn't force people, but it does prompt some people should people choose to allow themselves to knee jerk, as you say, pick a side or or, or that, that they would prefer to be on, generally speaking. But the facts don't warrant it. And, and we see that even with covid-19 when we're talking about the virus, like the virus is racist. Um, uh, and particularly well, you see LeBron James, right? Yeah, black young black men are being hunted every day in the streets of America. That's just absurd. In fact, if you look at this case, you have they're going, you know, they've been charged with murder. So that proves that there is justice in this country. That doesn't mean we're perfect people, but we do terrible things sometimes. But ju- there is justice. Yeah, no, it's a it's a good point, And I'm glad you uh, you took the time to write it up. David Harsani, senior writer for National Review, author of First Freedom. A ride through America's enduring history with a gun from the revolution to today. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Anytime. Thanks for having me. Okay. Save the dance. Oh, let's save the dance. Yes, save the dance. Another reason why Dan Proft is single. Yeah, uh, this from uh, Hilo, Hawaii, the Big Island. I like the Big Island. It looks like I'm going to have to move to uh, Maui or Kauai if I head out to Hawaii, which I love, by the way. Uh, This is, uh, you know, I I know tensions are riding high during these shutdown times, although Hawaii, Democrat-controlled state, beginning to open up as well. Um, this is a, a woman who uh, was apparently parked in the middle of a parking lot aisle in a Walmart parking lot and was asked to move. And, uh, well, this is how that went. Yeah! Oh, oh, my goodness. No, it's not enough! Park your car. Keep no! Driving. Like, what the hell? You better get the away from me. Yeah! You have a car. This is a delicate little flower. Everyone better stop yelling at me right now. I'm not moving. Okay. Thank you. Same thing to a car owner. Okay. 
I don't listen to you either. Listen, you short fucking piece of shit. Okay. Grow some fucking balls, baby. Grow some fucking balls. Okay. No, I'm not moving. Listen to you. No, no, no. You can talk all the fuck you want, all you fucking Hawaiians. The white ladies fucking crazy. You can talk all the fuck that you want, you fucking mother. No, it's not enough. Well, um. Yeah, the Hawaiians saying the white lady is crazy may be onto something. Um, also, it uh, turns out that uh, this uh, lovely woman who was just asked to move her car out of a parking aisle so, you know, other people could park and get around her and stuff. Uh, she's a kindergarten teacher on the island. So this is a story about not only why Dan Proft is single, but why Dan Proft is going to homeschool if Dan Proft ever has kids. Uh, all right, as we head into the weekend, don't forget, it's a perfect opportunity, if you've got some time on your hands, to watch the uh, wonderful documentary produced by our friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla, No Safe Spaces, the number one political documentary of 2019, 99% rating on Rotten Tomatoes by uh, the audience who viewed it. It uh, documents the assault on free speech that's happening on college campuses, that's happening on social media platforms, that's happening... Uh, on in, in Hollywood, of course, that's happening in Walmart parking lots in Hilo, Hawaii. Uh, and for a limited time, for Dan Prof listeners, use the discount code SAVE25, SAVE25, get 25% off uh, streaming No Safe Spaces on demand at nosafespaces.com. Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla tell you what you can do uh, by illustrating the problem to uh, stand for free speech in a free America. Watch No Safe Spaces. Use the discount code SAVE25 for 25% off that viewing. Watch it as many times as you want through the end of May, May 31st, all at nosafespaces.com. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. And uh, I love the Johnny-come-latelys to the conversation about balancing now that states are opening and we're starting to get some handle, and I mean just some handle, on the economic devastation that has been self-inflicted. April Jobs, 20.5 million shed Unemployment rate now 14.7%, a quadrupling of the unemployment rate in six weeks. And by the way, that's just through April. Remember, you've got big states that are still in more or less shutdown mode. In fact, the biggest states and the biggest economies, the biggest outbreaks, the biggest Democrat socialists. And so this is far from over. For more on these numbers... And the implications. We're pleased to be joined by our friend Scott the Cow Guy Shalady, Fox Business contributor. Scott, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. So, uh, provide some context for these numbers. I assume uh, 
we'll see uh, the Dow uh, spike today on the good news of only 14.7% unemployment rather than 16 or 17, as some predicted. I mean, it's it's crazy. Yeah, it was already up when the numbers came out. And, and you know what? People are right now, I think, are blissfully ignorant. I don't want to be Chicken Little or Debbie Downer, but I, the, the guys that I watch and, and listen to and read, I think they're really sometimes a little bit too afraid to really face really what's looking at them right now, you know, in the eyes. They, in the last seven weeks, over 33 million people have filed for unemployment. And then today, 20 and a half million people lost their jobs in the month of April. I mean, we're looking between one and four and one in five Americans that want a job can't get one. You know, at the height of the depression in 1933, we had an unemployment rate of 24.9%. And I think we're going to make a run at that. If you factor in all the people that didn't show up for work in April, they said that they would add another 5% to the total. So we're probably already looking at 20% as, as an unemployment rate. So, I mean, and then you just go down the list. Virgin Atlantic, 3,100 jobs. You know, United Airlines, 30% of its workforce, another 3,500. Disney, 43,000. Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, Hertz, JCPenney. I mean, it just doesn't stop, and it happens every single day. You know, the best way I've heard about it put is that, you know, you can shut that economy off like when you shut the gym lights off when you go home at night. But anybody that thinks that those gym lights go right on the first thing in the morning, you know, it takes 10 minutes for some of those gym lights to warm up, right? So there's no way we can turn this economy back. You know, a slow rolling opening of an economy is going to equal a slow rolling recovery, period. And with respect to um, those numbers, we're facing, as you say, uh, we're going to make a run at 24 percent. Well, one of the reasons is because of some government policy that makes it more attractive to stay on unemployment than it is to go back to work, even if your business, for example, got a PPP loan that would allow you to be on the payroll a lot, particularly in the service sector, saying, I'm just going to wait until my benefits run out the end of July before I look for a job again. Well, a lot of those say, for example, servers in the restaurant industry are going to find that it's a lot more competitive job market than it used to be, a lot more employees than employers coming out of this. And so you could see not only that number continue to spike beyond May, uh, you also could see it lag for an extended period of time, like you were talking about analogizing it to turning on the gym lights. It goes all the way down to the dog walker. I mean, not just servers. I don't know where these people think that if you've taken that economy and done the damage you've done to it, how you're going to just go ahead and go out and pick up another job right away. And again, I don't want to be, uh, you know, chicken little, but it's not going to happen. Like everybody's saying that we had this virus, the virus is the problem. It wasn't really some sort of systemic problem with the, you know, the financial system. However, it doesn't matter. The virus made it a systemic problem with the financial system, and that's what we're ha- going to have to deal with here. And the government couldn't be doing a worse job. I, and I don't know what the right job would have been per se, but we're trying to throw money at a virus, and that's just not going to work until you get the American psyche to feel comfortable. You know, all this garbage about being safe. I'm about to throw up listening to it all the time. Stay safe. Be safe. We're going to make our, our you know, no. You're going to be about as safe as the buildings in Chicago that say, you know, no guns allowed. Okay, if that makes you feel safe, then you're going to be fine. But I mean, at the end of the day, common sense will tell you we live in a safe economy, a safe country already. And they're just going to do some window dressing to try to get you back in the front door, which is a joke. So I'm very, very skeptical about how quickly this is going to pick back up. I think it's going to last a lot longer. I think it's probably a two or three year ordeal rather than, you know, like a lot of guys I just watched on the television this morning say it's a two or three month ordeal. It's not going to happen that way because. Where do, where do 43,000 to get back to, yeah, to get back to where we were? Yeah. I mean, who, who's going to, Disney's furloughing 43,000 people. That's a big deal. 43,000 people just don't show up on the doorstep on Monday morning when they say, okay, we're all good. We're going to hire you back. I mean, it's going to take a while to put these people through the system again. And then how about all the bankruptcies? 
the corner shop goes into bankruptcy because the guy couldn't help. So then somebody's going to have to buy it out of bankruptcy. Then they're going to have to refit it. Then he's going to have to rehire. That's 18 months right there. Or Neiman Marcus so, yesterday, which which that really hits your wardrobe, the Neiman Marcus bankruptcy. <laughs> I'm more of an Omar the tent maker guy. So that's... <laughs> so, um, so go, go back to the financial system. I, I, I want to get more thoughts on that. The idea that uh, we didn't have a problem with the financial system before this, but we do now and how that could present itself. Are, are we looking about, uh, again, pushing ourselves back into some credit crisis, some financial crunch like we saw in 2008, 2009 because of the response? Well, first of all, I would have argued that we weren't as healthy as we thought we were going into this. I mean, you had the president banging on about interest rate cuts when we had stocks of all-time record highs. That didn't smell right to me. But at the same time, we've now been hit. And... <laughs> What we're probably going to, we could see negative interest rates here, Dan. I mean, that's something that people say would have never happened. We didn't think we'd ever see negative oil prices either. And I think that with what we've got coming around the corner as far as the economy goes, I mean, I, I just don't see where all these people think that this is going to be an overnight instant success just because it used to be good. And I don't know how great it was beforehand. So to, to get us back to those levels, I just think it's going to take a lot longer. And so, Again, with 20 and a half million people losing their jobs in the month of April, and you're right, Dan, it's, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And the way that New York and California and Illinois are being handled right now, it's an absolute disaster. I mean, I don't know how more, how strongly to put it. And, you know, thank the Lord I had the wherewithal to get in that car March 21st and leave that area because it was acting so irrationally and it continues to do so that I'm being rewarded with a table of 10 people Monday night at Maple and Ash in Scottsdale because they're opening up their restaurants here already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what is going on here? Here's the thing. Um, and and I, I appreciate, you know, just the recognition we don't exactly know. Um, it's that sort of humility that's been lacking from so many political leaders. Um, not, not so much, actually, the public health folks, the doctors, the medical doctors, just the modelers and the politicians that rely on the modelers. That's where they're we we're under this delusion of infallibility. I go back to something Mike Rowe said earlier this week, who's you know one of the nation's leaders in common sense, Mike Rowe of Dirty Jobs fame. Yep. yep. Uh, said so, you know this idea of as you were talking about the slow roll opening, the essential versus non-essential, the idea that you can just end some careers and end some businesses and prop up others. Um, the 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 economy, uh, people working together, uh, people working uh, side by side in different industries. It's like a quilt, he described. You know, you you start pulling on one end, it starts to bunch up on the other. And you can't predict everything that's going to happen with 330 million people and a $20 trillion economy. And that's where we are now, you know, as much as uncharted territory with respect to the virus. Okay, fine, right. A lot of questions we need answers to, and we still do, and we need to keep searching, and we need to keep researching. For all of the predictions from the street, from the financial sector, from the analysts, we're in uncharted territory here, and we don't know how this will metastasize. No, and here's the deal. Governor Holcomb, Indiana, he's made Lake County and, and, and another county down by Indiana, uh, Indianapolis. Um, you know, they're still going to stay on lockdown while he opens up other counties. So here we are in a situation where three months ago, if you would have told me on one side of the street, you can get a haircut in Porter County and the other side of the street in Lake County, it's illegal to get a haircut. I would have I would have laughed you off the air. I would have been that it's an absolute. Now we have people that I think are, are sane trying to justify that line of thinking. And I can't understand. Now you've got Ventura County in California saying, hey, if you get sick and you've got the virus and you have a home that only has one bathroom, 
we're going to remove you from your home. They're coming for you if you are sick in California, Ventura County specifically, and you don't have enough bathrooms to keep people isolated. And they're going to take you to other, other, other housing, other living. How is, how is the world not revolting against that? Great piece from our friend uh, Selena Zito at RealClearPolitics.com about how businesses are operating on one side of the Tennessee-Virginia state line versus the other side, the Tennessee side versus the Virginia side. Same businesses, they're you know a hundred feet apart, and they have a completely different regime in Tennessee than they do Virginia. So the virus is going to respect those boundaries and the decisions of those respective governors, right? That this is it's insanity. It boggles my mind that they can't look at themselves in the mirror and laugh at themselves and say, what am I doing? This is ridiculous. I mean, what happened to common sense? I mean, this is it's, they're playing with people's lives. And at the same time, it's it's, uh, you know, a 10 year old person could figure this out. It's not that difficult. He is Scott, yeah. the cog guy, Shalady, Fox Business contributor. Scott, always a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Have a good weekend. Dance all day long. Dance all day Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb was on MSNBC, and I thought he had... um, a uh, compelling summation of the balance that needs to be struck in real time right now as we're discussing what to do next as we see different states doing different things. Here's uh, Dr. Gottlieb. Well, look, the safest condition to reopen the country would be after we see sustained declines in new cases, and we haven't seen that. Um, We've sort of hit a plateau at around 30,000 cases a day and 2,000 deaths a day. It bounces around, but if you look at the trend line, um, really for the last month, it's been around that level. I think many of us felt that the mitigation would work to bring down the number of cases, and you start seeing sustained declines in new cases by now. The mitigation worked to keep the hospitals from being overwhelmed and certainly mitigated the worst-case scenarios that we were projecting at the outset, but it hasn't brought down the number of new daily cases to the levels that we thought. And so you'd want to see cases on a downward trajectory around the country. You see cases actually going up in many parts of the country. And then you want to make sure you have the resources in place. You want to make sure the hospitals have extra capacity, that you have testing in place, that you have resources to do good track and trace of people who are infected and be able to isolate them. We don't have all those pieces in place, um, so we are reopening against some risk. But, you know, we have to weigh that against the cost of remaining shut, too. And there's public health consequences on the other side of this. For example, data came out just yesterday showing that visits for chemotherapy are down almost 20 percent, meaning cancer patients are literally skipping um, treatments. And so there are a lot of public health costs on Mm -hmm. both sides of this, and that's why this is so hard. There's also this issue, and that's the concentration of caseload. Uh, Norbert Michael over at the Heritage Foundation looked at this and found that more than half of U.S. counties have no COVID-19 deaths. We're so focused on big metropolitan areas, and that's fine. That's where the big caseloads are. Context. Always context. This is a big, diverse country. And, uh, yeah, for example, talking about Illinois, if you, you want to look at Chicago, that's the population center. Chicago Metro, 60 percent of the population. But let me tell you something. When you start aggregating all the counties in central and southern Illinois that have very few cases and few, if any, deaths, you start talking about a whole heck of a lot of people. Seven figures worth of people down there, too. They matter. Uh, Somebody who lives in southern Illinois matters as much as somebody who lives in Chicago. 
Isn't that sort of the philosophy of saving lives? Somebody skipping their chemotherapy treatments out of fear matters as much as somebody who got the COVID-19 infection, right? Just five states, New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, and Illinois, Massachusetts, Illinois, and California, those five states account for 54% of all confirmed cases and 61% of all deaths. There are 1,600, more than 1,600 counties in this country that have zero deaths, another 447 that have one death, another 443 that have two to five deaths, another 183 that have six to 10, another 94 that have 11 to 15. You get the point, context. And going back to what Scott Gottlieb said there in terms of framing it, okay, doctor, but then he also said this at the end with respect to your point, Amy, about testing and uh, the infection numbers we're getting and what the real infection numbers probably are based on the testing that's being done. Remember, for every case we're diagnosing, and we're diagnosing about 30,000 a day, there's probably 10 to 20 infections. So we're probably diagnosing only 1 in 10 to 1 in 20 infections. So those 30,000 are really about 300,000 infections a day. Well, if they're really more like 300,000 or 600,000 infections a day, then what does that say about the lethality rate of the virus? And what does it say about herd immunity? The German virologist, Professor Hendrik Streck from the University of Bonn, points this out. Uh, He's done a recent study. Germany's got high marks for their control of the virus, as you know, and moving to reopen. He um, looked at uh, trying to identify the percentage of the population, the German population already infected. His headline result is about 15 percent of the population which was infected, which implies a fatality rate in Germany of 0.36 percent. But he he makes the point about uh, the percentage infected, modeling that to show how significant every percentage point makes. If 0.36 percent of is correct for Britain, for example, uh, and we've had 30,000 COVID-19 deaths, which they have, that would mean around 8.3 million people have been affected. That's 12 and a half percent of the population. That's not enough to start feeling confident about much immunity in the community. However, if the lower estimate in terms of lethality of the virus is correct, and there have been predictions, uh, projections of more like 0.24 percent, eight one hundredths percent of a difference, then the number of people who have been infected in Britain all of a sudden goes from eight million to 20 million, which is around a third of the population and fundamentally changes the calculus in terms of how bold policymakers might want to be and how reasoned residents may be understanding just how widespread the infection is. That's why you know, eight tenths of a percent could make that big a difference in terms of the perspective of policymakers and run of the mill residents alike. That's why all this stuff is so important because it's the basis for these decisions and it's the basis for people's understanding. And it's the basis by which fear may someday give way to reason uh, for so many. Today's not that day, but maybe someday. I want to hear from John Nolte, the editor at large of Breitbart. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. And um, so you've written about uh, some of these topics, but I wanted to start with uh, just on the, the larger topic of reopening. This piece that you wrote uh, last week about uh, North Carolina, doing a little comparison contrast, North Carolina, where you live, and Roy Cooper, the governor there, maintaining a, a statewide lockdown despite, you know, the data and science. And these are supposed to be men and women of data and science in public offices. At least that's what we hear from them. Yeah, it makes no sense 
my county and the four counties around me, five counties total, we've had fewer than 100 coronavirus cases. Uh, I think we've had one death um, in those five counties. Each of those five counties has a hospital. So our system is not going to be overwhelmed. Why are we locked down? And then he extended the lockdown from April 31st to May 8th. My question is this. I think this is the existential question regarding all of this. We have no cure. We have no vaccine. Why is it safer to open on May 8th than today? There are states that are going to be closed until July. How is it safer to open up in July than it is to open up today? The vaccine is still out there. It's still going to be as infectious as it is. And if there's no risk of overwhelming the health system, and that's a, that's a valid reason to lock down, but if there's no risk that that's going to happen, what makes it safer to leave your house on July 6th because the same wolf is still going to be outside waiting for you? So none of this makes any sense whatsoever to me. And no one can answer that question. And the guy, I heard the clip, the MSNBC guy, it's just fear porn. 30,000 new cases a day, 30,000 infections a day. It, it, like you guys said, it's because we're testing more. We're, we're doing hundreds of thousands of tests every day. So, of course, we're going to find more infections. But if you look at the hospitalization rate, and I did a piece on that yesterday, you'll find that hospitalization is flat or it's decreasing. So the, 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 the most useless number in America today is infection rate because we're testing so much. The, the number that matters if you want to know if there's a new explosion somewhere is the hospitalization rate. And I don't see hospitalization rates spiking anywhere. When we come back with Breitbart Editor-at-Large, John Nolte, I want to talk about uh, testing a bit as well as the decisions governors like uh, yours there in North Carolina, Roy Cooper, are making that are completely at odds or at least unmoored from science. More with John Nolte when we come back. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Breitbart Editor-at-Large, John Nolte. And I want to go back to uh, the usefulness of testing, what, why it is important, and also what, um, consistent with that, uh, related to that, what a noted virologist at the University of Bonn, Professor Streck, points out with a recent study that he did and the discussion about herd immunity and exactly what percentage of the population is infected. Maybe Dr. Gottlieb. Exactly. Was, yes, I agree. Yeah, he maybe he was unintentionally backing into that. I mean, he's a sharp guy. But but I mean, if it's if it's really 10 or 20 times the number of infections daily in, in some respects, that's good news because. Herd immunity is immunology 101, and unless there's a vaccine in the offing, which there does not appear to be, there may be a, a uh, imperfect treatment in the offing, but not a vaccine in the offing, then then yes, you want the young and healthy to develop antibodies, and uh, and and that's the way to quell the spread of the disease as well as potentially its lethality. And oh, by the way, Gottlieb also said the same thing that you've heard from Dennis Prager as well as on this show, which is... Yes, we expect that this will be seasonal. We expect it to be back in the fall and the winter. We don't know what form it will take. Uh, we don't know if we'll have uh, you know, the, the prospect of another epidemic, but we expect it to be back. And so now with the precedent that you've established 
What's the threshold by which you're going to have governors or calls on the president to shut everything down again? We're going to be on this hamster wheel or do we want to be a little bit more measured and thoughtful about what exactly we're doing as we're gathering all this information? And as we're seeing, by the way, real world examples, uh, not just in Sweden, but in states that are reopening now, that should be instructive for the states that aren't. Yeah. Yeah. And when it comes to that, and that's the point I was I, I, I wasn't clear on. The rate, the infection number is a useless number. Yes, it's very useful uh, when it comes to, to finding out what the true fatality rate is and other things like that, obviously. But when you're talking about the infection number as it relates to lockdowns, it's just fear porn. It's misleading. It's deliberately misleading. And it's meaningless when it comes to locking us down. There's no reason to have us locked down. And, and you know, we, we my understanding is that we still don't have a vaccine for the flu of 1918 that wiped out millions and millions of people across the world. But why, why did that epidemic go away? Herd immunity. Enough of us have the antibodies. And chances are very slim we're going to get a vaccine to cure the coronavirus. So the only hope we have is herd immunity. And we might find out in the end, five years from now, when the history of this is written, 10 years from now, when Everyone, when someone's able to take off their partisan blinders and their hatred for Trump and actually write the truth, we may find out that avoiding herd immunity by locking everyone down ended up in the long run killing more people. Because if we had gotten herd immunity earlier, we could have saved more lives. This is all part of the uh, the propagation of fear, the the, the way that uh, politicians like uh, J.B. Pritzker in Illinois and Whitmer in Michigan and Evers in Wisconsin and talk about this is, uh, you know, that everyone is equally susceptible and this is death at your door for everyone all the time. The casual co- contact that's not within six feet with anybody. It is it is anti-science. It is anti-intellectual. And uh, Joe Sternberg, I think, has it right in the Wall Street Journal. This is Project Fear 3.0. If you drew a Venn diagram of the people that had the apocalyptic predictions about a Trump presidency, the apocalyptic predictions about Brexit and the apocalyptic predictions about this, they'd probably probably be a perfect circle. Yeah. And then add to it, you know, global warming. It's just a constant. It's it's a constant. You know, we were supposed to die because of uh, because they freed up the Internet. We were supposed to die because they lowered taxes. It's just this constant fear porn, and and it it never stops. And people just need to turn off their TV, and they need to just talk to their neighbors and talk to their doctors and and figure this out on their own. Because this idea that we have these centralized voices now, centralized scientists and centralized media, and they're all on the same the same hysteria. It's all politically driven. It's not driven by any kind of science whatsoever. And anyone who wants to take a look at the numbers will see that. The numbers look really good. I'm not saying the death, the death rate uh, as far as the number of people dying. Of course, it's terrible. But when you look at the numbers right now, the hospitalization rate, everything's going just fine. When you look at the states that didn't shut down, they're doing just fine. Florida's doing just fine. And yet the governor that's getting all the accolades, Como, um, he's the guy who didn't clean the subways, who put people back in nursing homes that were sick. That's the that's the pandemic ground zero. And he's supposed to be the hero. And Ron DeSantis, who did everything right in Florida, he's the villain. 
and it's it's just crazed propaganda. John Nolte, editor-at-large at Breitbart, Breitbart.com. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Let's talk about snitch culture. David Marcus, uh, writing the Federalist this week, friend of the show, explaining why he didn't rat out his neighbor for cutting hair hmm. he frames this discussion perfectly question about the nature of american civil life is my primary duty to my government or to my neighbors think about that is my primary duty to my government or to my neighbors because the answer to that question orders your response doesn't it your behavior and i by response i mean marcus writes for me the answer is clearly the latter my primary duty is to my neighbors. The idea that I should be the entity ensuring everyone lives by the letter of the law is anathema. Should we call the police when there's a serious crime happening? Sure, of course. Should we call the police because someone is cutting hair in their backyard? No. The American people are smart. They understand what's going on. They are doing a good job handling what has been asked of them, but they also need to be trusted. We don't need a state-driven crackdown on people living their lives, and we certainly don't need citizens looking over their shoulders waiting to be sold down the river by fretful neighbors. Right. Uh, Another illustration of this comes to us from suburban Chicago, a uh, well-heeled upper-middle-income suburb called Hoffman Estates. And public enemy number one in Hoffman Estates from a member of the CBS affiliate in Chicago that uh, apparently lives in or around Hoffman Estates. You know who it is. Number, public enemy number one, the ice cream guy. Here's Mr. Freeze, not his name, in his truck of treats, unmasked, ungloved, taking cash for cones in the northwest burbs. That's when CBS2 assignment editor Greg Kelly, father of two, dad on a bike, said, wait a minute. You think it's a good idea to be doing this with the stay-at-home order with COVID-19? Eventually, our Greg got a bit closer, tried to get an answer from Mr. Freeze. Again, not his name. Why are you wearing this, sir? Why are you trying to take why are you selling ice cream, out ice cream to children without wearing a mask? Why are you trying to... Are you sick? Am I sick? No, and I want to say that. I'm not way. sick either. Why are they quarantining healthy people? What's your name, sir? This is not a law. At this time, face coverings are required in public situations where social distance cannot be maintained. I have a permit. I get, I get permits. Right. The you, city, got the permit, the state, you got the permit before the stay-at-home order. I can't understand what you're saying. Back up and, and remove the mask. I'm not removing the mask. The response from the village of Hoffman Estates to this incident, if you see the ice cream guy, call 911. Uh, The CBS report on this uh, is uh, so smarmy, him saying, you know, it's not a law. No. And then them playing Governor Pritzker, uh, 
issuing the edict for face coverings. Yeah, well, that's that's an executive order that has the force of law. But the ignoramus that works for CBS, as we discussed yesterday, oh, face covering is the edict. So if he pulls his shirt over his uh, nose and mouth and that covers compliance with the edict and you know what else? It absolutely does zero to protect him or anybody else. Dr. Osterholm, meet the press's go-to epidemiologist from the University of Minnesota. These cloth coverings that are compliant with executive orders like Governor Pritzker's are stop the spread theater. Zero impact on stopping the spread. But yet you have these uh, officious prigs like the uh, Abbott and Costello routine at CBS2 in Chicago, getting all high and mighty by shaming uh, an uh, an older gentleman who's uh, driving around selling ice cream. Oh, by the way, to kids who are all but impervious to COVID-19 from all of the data that's been called the world over. They know better, though, because there are betters, right? That guy trying to make uh, some scratch during uh, the shutdown times in Illinois, again, along with places like Michigan and Virginia, New York, suffering under one of the more draconian shutdowns in America. And uh, I mentioned this earlier in the show, didn't get a chance to give you examples of, um, you know, real people like this gentleman who it's easy to pile on. But this Time magazine piece. That just presents uh, vignettes, uh, a cross section of opinions from Americans who are struggling and trying to figure out what to do next, trying to figure out how, how much more suffering they can endure from around the country. Marcella Betancourt, 58 years old. She had been a janitor at Tesla's Fremont, California factory until April 7th when the company told her and 129 fellow janitors to go home and not come back until social distancing measures were lifted. She got her last paycheck on April 8th and has no idea when the next one's coming. She owes $1,325 for an emergency room visit in March, is struggling to pay the rent and uh, pay for food. Her husband, a construction worker, lost his job. So did their son, Daniel, 20, who's in the first who's the first in their family to go to college and was helping to pay his way with a job at an arcade. The family put the stimulus check they got from the federal government towards their son's tuition and is praying something will come uh, through before June rent is due. You want to pile on her? You want a virtue signal in response to her very real economic security concerns and all the public health concerns that we should have for her and her family attendant to the economic security anxieties that they're that are very real. Uh, you know, come together, all in it together. Together uh, inside all the other hashtag campaigns and you see the most savage behavior from people that are in positions of insulation from most of the more severe impacts of the policy decisions that have been made by politicians from around the uh, politicians throughout the country. It's really quite something. I I, I don't know uh, if that. uh, renews your faith in humanity or decimates it. But um, with respect to the snitch culture, yeah, I'm in agreement with David Marcus. My uh, duty is primarily to my neighbor and um, 
many of my neighbors in the generic sense of that the, throughout the country, particularly in insulated circles. Not exactly inspiring me to be my brother's keeper. At least not those brothers. This is Dan Prof. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And uh, when we spoke with uh, former assistant director of intelligence at the FBI, Kevin Brock, earlier in the show, we uh, didn't uh, have a chance to get to some of Attorney General Barr's comments during an interview he gave to Catherine Herridge of CBS National. And there are some important notes here from Barr we wanted to get to, particularly with respect to the evidence that was determinative in him deciding to drop the charges against General Flynn? I, I think a very important evidence here was that, that this was not a bona fide counterintelligence investigation, uh, was that they were closing the investigation in, in December. They started that process, mm-hmm. and on January 4th, they were closing it. Uh, and that when they heard about the phone call, which is, they, the FBI had the transcripts to, and this was, there was no question as to what was discussed. The FBI knew exactly what was discussed. And General Flynn, being the former uh, director of the DIA, said to them, you know, you listen, you, you listen to everything. You know, you, you know what was said. So there's no mystery about the call. But they initially tried some uh, theories of how they could open another investigation, which didn't fly. And then they found out that they had not technically closed the earlier investigation and they kept it open for the express purpose of trying to catch, uh, lay, lay a perjury trap for General Flynn. Not just the prosecution of Flynn, but the entire counterintelligence investigation was illegitimate. As to the prospect of consequences for those who advanced this illegitimate counterintel investigation and prosecution? Just because something may even stink to high heaven and be, you know, appear everyone to be uh, bad, uh, we still have to apply the right standard and be convinced that uh, there's a violation of a criminal statute and that we can prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. The same standard applies to everybody. Same standard applies to everybody, and so that's a pending matter, pending the outcome of the Durham investigation at minimum. But it's just important to note what Barr had to say. It's opportunity to remind those within your circles of influence who are Trump haters, and so the ends justify the means. Let's say Trump loses in November. On his way out, would you be okay with Trump or Trump's FBI director, Christopher Wray, organizing the same sort of counterintelligence investigation into the next president and his designee or national security advisor that was organized against General Flynn and President Trump by his predecessor? Hmm. Be fascinating to hear the answers, wouldn't it? Folks like you, I'm confined to my home. Well, like you in places named Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan. And uh, people still enjoying some downtime with the family. Watch uplifting movies that affirm our faith. It's a good time to do it. Uh, One such offering I would recommend Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, a documentary that presents convincing evidence. The biblical account of the Exodus is true. It's the work of investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney, who journeyed to Egypt, Israel and throughout the world to research the answers to the question. Did the stories like Exodus as written in the Bible really happen? 
Right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, along with the other movies in the series, which include the Moses Controversy and the Red Sea Miracle, at PatternsofEvidence.com. Again, watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, and others in the series. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Follow us online. DanProftShow.com is where you get the podcast, the program. You can also get at Spotify and iTunes course on social media at dan prof show on twitter and facebook at prof dan on instagram uh it was uh, said by cicero that true nobility is exempt from fear if true nobility is exempt from fear we're not getting much noble conduct in the western world these days are we our uh, next guest frank ferretti who is a former professor of sociology at the university of kent in england He's the author of a book, How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century. He uh, recently penned a piece for spikedonline.com, spike-online.com, where our friend of the show, uh, Brendan O'Neill, writes. We, talk, we spoke with on uh, last night's program. Professor Ferretti argues in the piece, let me cite him, while governments were delighted that a fearful panic was so ready to exchange its freedoms for the promise of safety, they now have a new problem. Namely, that citizens have become too anxious to leave their homes when the lockdown ends. And he's right. We're seeing that in polling data and we're seeing that in uh, actual behavior in uh, some of the more than two dozen states in the United States that are at some phase of reopening. For more on the topic, we're pleased now to be joined by Professor Freddie. Professor, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. So what about um, just how, how fear works from a sort of a psychosociological perspective? Uh, I think this is fascinating, uh, even as those people who uh, they trusted and are giving high marks to uh, in, in America. Two thirds of those surveyed in a recent CNBC survey says they say they uh, they support, they approve of the combined state and local government response. Well, so now in those places where they're locking down, they're beginning to reopen. They approve the response and they still won't come outside. <laughs> I mean, I, I have a little, little difficulty reconciling all that. Well, I, I think it's uh, to do with the fact that for almost three decades now in uh, American life and also in, you know, in the Anglo-American world, safety has become the fundamental value. In, a, in society, and everybody is continually talking about the need to stay safe, and uh, we use the safe as almost as a quasi-religious value, that anything that is good has got to be safe. And the trouble with this kind of uh, imagination is that once you begin to kind of want to have safety, it has its own imperative, and if you're obsessed with safety, you'll never feel safe, because you can always find some reason as to why tomorrow or the day after tomorrow, something that uh, unexpected that happens threatens your life. And I think that the tragedy is, is that we've lost sight of the fact that there is no such thing as, as a safe world in and of itself. What we have is a world where we're continually forced to make decisions, use our judgments, use our common sense as to you know what is the, the best way forward. And uh, there aren't any guarantees. Nobody can give you a guarantee that everything is going to be safe. We have to live with uncertainty as part of our existence, and 
unfortunately, we've lost sight of that uh, in the last 30 years. Yeah, it used to be the, the cliche was life is risk, and now it's life is no risk, which is, as you say, an impossibility. And I like the way you frame that, too, the idea, now I feel, I feel safe. Well, there's always going to be a new threat. There's going to be a new event that makes you feel unsafe, so there's going to be a new measure to sort of salt you away from, from, uh, uh, from the vagaries of life. Newt Gingrich actually wrote on this topic as well. He, uh, he he believes, like I think you're indicating, there's a bit of a cultural, recent cultural phenomenon. He writes, two generations of overprotecting our children, seeking safe places, announcing trigger warnings, hyperventilating on social media, and having radio and TV starving for things to fill continuous 24-7 cycles have built up to a crescendo of noise. And the noise is all in the direction, as you say, of abundance of caution the, uh, the sort of the thrill seeking almost in some respects of um, saving humanity, saving the world, being safe. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, the way that I see it is that ever since the 80s, we've been encouraged to adopt what I call worst case thinking that it's, you know, whenever there's a problem, we always think that the worst is going to happen rather than ask the question, well, what's the likely thing that's going to occur? And this particularly pertains to childhood. I, I've written a few books on the subject of the way that every childhood experience comes with a health warning. And we continually insulate young children from the experience of everyday life. We don't give them the freedom to explore the outdoors so that they learn to develop the habit of independence, to develop the ability to take risks. And I think what happens is that as one generation goes by, another generation becomes even more susceptible to this way of looking at it. And recently I did a study in Europe that shows that uh, the older the parents, the more relaxed they are with bringing their kids up. Hmm. Whereas the younger the parents, uh, the more uptight and paranoid they are in terms of dealing with children. And that's to do with the way in which uh, kind of uh, every generation becomes even more worried about dealing with the unknown and dealing with uncertainty. You know what's interesting? And, uh, I, I started to interrupt, but you know what's interesting on that, too, and I wonder if you find this? It seems like that's perhaps particularly pronounced with the more educated, despite the fact you would think that the more educated, those with uh, undergraduate degrees, uh, postgraduate degrees, would, would uh, have an appreciation for balance, you know, the, the freedom versus order balance we talk about when you're arguing about what a free society should look like, how it should be organized, that you have uh, values that are in competition with one another. And so it's about striking a balance. But there seems to be no discussion of balance, particularly from those elite quarters when it comes to something like this viral outbreak. Well, you're right, except there's one problem, which is that because the uh, educated elites control the media and they control culture and they have a disproportionate influence on, on how we, on the narrative of the pandemic or on the way in which any adverse circumstance is presented, their concern and their anxiety uh, seeps down into uh, the rest of society. And mm -hmm. in particular, if you look at the way that the school system works, the universities work, they continually almost re-educate young people, no matter what their background is, to adopt the very precautionary risk-averse behavior of, of the cultural elites. And as a result of that, although there is a difference in the response, thank, go thank goodness for that. Nevertheless, these attitudes, which is particularly strong amongst the educated elite, 
do have a disproportionate impact on the rest of society. That's an interesting point. Just, uh, again, expressions of this, expressions of what we're trying to get our hands around in terms of fear. It seems like we've gone from everybody gets a trophy to everybody's a hero. The way that you're a hero in America is if you uh, are able to work and you do your job, or if you're unable to work because you've been deemed non-essential, you're silently obedient. And all of the people who fit one of those two descriptions are heroes. If, if all of those individuals are heroes, do we even have anything such as a hero or heroic action anymore? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I think what's happened in, in not just in America, but in the Western world, is that about 120% of the population are heroes now. <laughs> and, and that has occurred because we've done two things. We've defined heroism downwards, so it doesn't really mean anything. You know, you're a hero just because, you know, you kind of, put up with adversity, you know, you haven't really done anything, but you kind of sort of get on with life. But what we also done, and that's even more damaging, is we downsize the meaning of courage. Courage, which used to be the most important antidote to fear, mm-hmm. has not, is now defined in a most trivial way. So we use the expression, the courage to survive. Well, the courage to survive is what we all do. I mean, you know, we have, we have to survive, otherwise we cease to exist. And if that's the same thing as courage, then it no longer uh, has the connotation of something exceptional, something difficult, which is, which is what it historically has meant. The virtue of courage is something you, you really have to struggle to find in yourself. It's not something that just comes with, with kind of survival. Well, and uh, let me take one step back there and, and invoke one of my favorite observations from C.S. Lewis, who said that courage is the formation of every virtue at its testing point. In other words, if you don't have any courage, then you cannot possess any other virtue because when tested, you will wilt. So as we become less courageous, we become less virtuous by, nece- by, by necessity, by definition. Yeah, I'm absolutely right. And one of my big beefs at the moment with the schooling system, I'm very interested in child rearing, is, is that we've kind of taken courage out of the equation. There used to be a time when we try to encourage young children to take courage seriously, to inspire them, to understand the importance of uh, occasionally going beyond your comfort zone. And in recent times, educators say, well, that's really bad. If you've got to bring courage into the equation, that's very masculine, that's very toxic. And instead, what we want them to be is to be emotionally sensitive, to understand themselves. And we kind of psychologize child-rearing and displace teaching them virtues like courage by giving them a diagnosis instead. And I think that that to me is arguably the biggest uh, sort of threat to the development of an independent ability to deal with a pandemic or any kind of adversity in, in our society. He is Professor Frank, Frank Ferruti. He is a former professor of sociology at the University of Kent. He's the author of How Fear Works, Culture of Fear in the 21st Century. Professor Ferruti, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thanks very much. Take care. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, this next segment comes with a health advisory. If you have any anxiety, it's likely to be exacerbated as we turn our discussion to uh, living with yourself during such uh, existential threats as a 20-minute interruption 
in internet service. It's uh, tough to uh, make the COVID-19 pandemic into a dystopian sort of Cormac McCarthy world when we still have Wi-Fi, as Bridget Fatese points out. But she's doing her best. She's a contributor to Spectator USA, to The Federalist. She's a former Playboy advisor for Playboy magazine, my dream job. Bridget, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. Uh, your uh, daily journal, as uh, memorialized in The Spectator, is is really quite something. Uh, let's uh, start with um, your disposition. It starts out very optimistic that you're going to live your best quarantine life each day. But then, um, you know, all sorts of uh, trials and tribulations intercede. Yeah, I think that it's a pretty common theme with people that they start out every day, but particularly when you're on lockdown or when you're in your house and you're trying to be disciplined about your working from home and you have the the best of intentions when you wake up and the day often goes sideways. Yeah, it's uh, such that uh, you don't even trust uh, watching subtitled movies anymore. I mean, uh, what kind of world is that in which to live? Yes, (laughs) it's true. I've become deeply distrustful of everything. I think when I'm just too alone with my thoughts and all of the the news nonstop. Uh, it's got to be like, uh, I mean, just since we're binge watching all the time now, some of us at least that are, you know, the non-essentials. It's like watching a Black Mirror episode, watching a Black Mirror episode almost. It's like the screen within the screen within the screen, some of this dynamic. I know it does. It feels somebody on Twitter had a great joke. They said, when is the next? season of black mirror dropping and someone responded it's it's outside <laughs> right, we're living it <laughs> well so how how are you well, coping give us a day in the life of bridget fatese i'm a writer so my life isn't terribly different i'm not doing as much traveling as i was doing i'm definitely a little bit stir crazy because i'm used to running here and there and everywhere and being able to go interview people for my podcast and i think that the lack of when you work from home already you, in my instance, any kind of social interaction is good for me mentally. So to have that already limited social interaction and then have whatever was left of that kind of taken away has been challenging. For the most part, I've been baking bread like so many other people in America. (laughs) Okay. And um, I know you consider learning a language or or, uh, learning to play the guitar, but uh, those have gone by the boards? No, I actually have been doing my my Spanish lessons, Um, not probably as frequently as I'd like. I've been writing a lot, and I'm pretty well suited for this because my living, you know, if I I had still been waitressing, I would be in big trouble right now. Oh, right. Because I was a waitress for 20 years, so I, I I don't know how I would be managing if that was my livelihood and I no longer had it and I would just be in in a completely different situation. So right now I feel very grateful. I'm trying to interview people who have been more affected by this than me. I've you know, my the biggest way that it's affected me is in things like I'm I'm kind of a luxury expense because people subscribe to my um myspedacy.com where I do where it's basically just a community and people gather and they and I also share writing that I don't share publicly and they get outtakes from dumpster fire the YouTube show that I I was already producing on my property so Mm. a lot of the things that I was doing I was already doing it was already very self-contained so it didn't it didn't stop so now I'm trying to do those things and 
at least entertain people or <laughs> or keep myself entertained. Yeah, right. Although people have been saying that I'm clearly losing my mind <laughs> with every episode of Dumpster Fire. <laughs> Well, the, the thing that's uh, sort of making me uh, bounce off the walls a little bit are the, the pronouncements from our uh, new crop of betters. I mean, they, they'd always sort of been a part of the class of our perceived betters, uh, self, self-appointed betters, but now they're getting more profile. A good example of this is Melinda Gates, who uh, uh, it's uh, trending on Twitter, like uh, you're always trending on Twitter, but Melinda Gates is trending on Twitter for... <laughs> Uh, giving the Trump administration COVID-19 outbreak response a D-minus grade. Melinda Gates, you know, noted epidemiologist, noted infectious disease expert, noted economist, is now in the position (laughs) of grading people because she gets to give away Bill's money. (laughs) First of all, I don't trend on Twitter. That is my nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) I was joking the other day that I hope the only time I'm trending on Twitter is when I'm dead. Because that is a night that seems like a nightmare to me, but um, I don't know. The whole thing seems crazy to me, and I do think Melinda and Bill do a lot of good, and I do think a lot of the conspiracy theories around him are a little wacky. So I don't want to lend any credence to that, but I do also think that why why she thinks that she can grade the administration is also hilarious. Yeah, I mean, I'm not into like you said. Who? What is your? What is your professional what is your expertise? expertise right. This? Yeah. No, I'm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I appreciate the philanthropy, and I'm not in conspiracy theories either. But I mean, listening to the. the I mean, you're, you was very good at creating an operating system and marketing the product, but Bill Gates to tell us, uh, for Bill Gates, for example, to tell us uh, just the other week when we can and cannot talk about China and uh, the origins <laughs> of the virus. I mean, you know, that's the sort yeah. of thing that, um, you know, rubs people the wrong way for all kinds of, of good reason. Just all of the dystopian, uh, this is the thing, you know, I think most people are worried about their health. I also think most people are worried about their finances. And I think most people are worried about their civil liberties being stripped. I don't think People, you know, it seems if you watch the media that people are concerned about it's a binary one or the other. You either want to open up or you want grandma to die. And that is actually not the case with most people. Most people are balancing all of these things. I went down to see the algaes here in Southern California. So it's this amazing phosphorescent mm-hmm. wave. And I went down the other night and there were so many people down there. And the first night I went, there were no cops in sight. And it was people with their families and it was Cinco de Mayo and everybody was social distancing. Everybody had masks. It was lovely. And it's this crazy, you know, natural phenomenon that, of course, people want to go see it. The second night I went down, cops were trying to get people off the beach. They had changed the Ferris wheel at Santa Monica to have, you know, like, thank you to our first response. Thank you to our service, the, the like first responders and the healthcare workers. And it had a like, you know, the nurse Red Cross and it, an American flag. It was very dystopian. And then the police were there and they were with their mic and they were saying the beach is closed. Everybody needs to leave. But to everybody's credit, they just ignored them. Nobody listened to them. They just they the cops would drive by and they would just say that. But nobody actually would move or leave. So. There People is, are yeah. civilly disobeying. Yes, there is this concept uh, that some need to refamiliarize themselves with called consent of the governed. It's sort of important in a free society. 
She is uh, Bridget Fetisi, contributor to Spectator USA, the Federalist, former Playboy advisor for Playboy magazine. Read her uh, work at spectator.us. Very entertaining stuff uh, in, in addition to informative stuff. Bridget, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dan. Take care. And if you win, you get the shiny fiddle made of gold. But if you lose, the devil gets your soul. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. 400 years ago, English poet uh, John Donne, his uh, Meditation 17 included the famous uh, observation, never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. That was uh, you know, a uh, response to isolationism. Uh, people forget some of the other verse associated with Meditation 17. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Any man's death diminishes me because I'm involved in mankind. Have we taken that to a ridiculous extreme in these times of COVID-19? For more an answer to that query, pleased to be joined by Diane Coyle, professor of public policy at the University of Cambridge and author of Markets, State, and People, Economics for Public Policy. She has written a project syndicate on the end of individualism in these times. Professor Coyle, thanks for joining us. I won't make you recite any poetry. (laughs) You uh, do it so beautifully, I wouldn't even try. Okay, well, um, well, what about that, though? uh, I I, uh, uh, agree and understand that uh, humanity is an interconnected uh, organism, but uh, are we uh, taking it uh, too far when um, we're deeming some essential, for example, and others non-essential? Is that really um, illustrative of the spirit that uh, was memorialized by John Donne? Well, um, I guess not, although it's quite instructive, isn't it, to realize just how many people are deemed to be essential to our everyday lives and uh, um, what kind of work they're doing. It's brought home... Uh, with some force during this uh, this crisis. Um, but I guess the, there's nothing like a pandemic for reminding you about the connections between people. But what was in my mind was the way that the digital economy, the way the economy is changing generally, makes us more connected with each other. You know, over time, more of what we do in the economy is services for each other rather than making machines or cars that roll off the production line. Mm. Um, if you think about the data economy, um, all data is about other people as well as as well as us. We call it personal, but that's a bit um, a bit false, it seems to me. If I post a picture online of my husband, is that his property or my property? If I have some information about my temperature or my heart rate, then I don't know what it means unless I know what's the normal um, figure for the whole population. Or if you think about something like a social media platform, just like the phone network, the more people use it, the more beneficial it is to me. And so it seems to me we have gone too far in thinking about the individual and we need to, uh, you know, just reorient uh, ourselves a bit and think about how much we need each other again. 
Well, uh, certainly. But the, the question is what form that need takes and, and the response to that need takes. Right. Is it a, a form of persuasion you know, where you have uh, collaboration or is it a, in the form of coercion, whether you where you have government diktats? That's a big difference, particularly in the West, as you understand. And so concerns about, for example, uh, one of the phrases that is uh, prevalent right now, contact tracing. And what form that takes and the monitoring with the apps of some of these big tech companies that uh, could be utilized that uh, may or may not arguably run afoul of people's, you know, in America, for example, constitutional rights. Uh, These are real concerns that have to be sort of um, uh, litigated in real time because you want a response to this and you want to implement the best practices, but you want to respect individual rights at the same time. So. Uh, we aren't uh, undermining the very foundations of free societies. Sure. Well, the contact tracing question really brings to the forefront this dilemma about uh, the rights of the individual um, versus how much we affect each other um, as a kind of collective or, or socially. And that's why the companies developing the app, Apple and Google, have gone to such lengths, such lengths to make sure that people understand it does respect their privacy. So they're trying to get the best of both worlds, safeguard privacy, and at the same time, pass on to people the information that will help them uh, protect themselves and and their families. So that seems a a very reasonable way to go about it. That debate's going on in Europe too, where the British government and the French government want to collect the data anonymized so that they know what the spread of the epidemic is among the whole population and use that information to the benefit of everybody. And that's a different choice. But I guess the beauty of living in democracies is that we can periodically make our choices about about what approach we want to these things. And, and you know, I'm not in favor of, of diktat. I think these things have to be discussed openly and people make their choice and elect the kind of government that they want. Uh, when we come back with uh, Diane Coyle, professor of public policy at the University of Cambridge, I want to go back to this idea of uh, essential versus non-essential and um, and who decides uh, more with professor coyle right after this hey but don't you want to go down like some junkie cosmonaut a million miles below their feet a million miles a million miles this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Diane Coyle. She's a professor of public policy at the University of Cambridge and author of Markets, State and People, Economics for Public Policy. And uh, we, we started our conversation uh, last segment by talking a little bit about the, the essential versus non-essential and, um, you know, one of the things that we see in America is that, um, well, the entire public sector is essential and much of the private sector is not. And so not only is that uh, a concern to the individuals that are otherwise uh, working to support both their, themselves and the private sector, as well as that public sector that uh, has deemed itself essential. And is that a bit of a conflict of interest? I get to decide who's essential. And it turns out I am. Uh, number one. And number two, the the outcome of this in terms of who uh, becomes more powerful coming out of the pandemic and any concerns about the ability of collaboration rather than coercion 
because of the, you know, winners and losers when it comes to uh, sort of uh, inner intra-society power? Well, I think um, the, what's happened here in Europe is a different split in terms of essential and non-essential because essential certainly includes public sector workers. In our case, that's, that's in healthcare and education, uh, but also the people who collect the garbage each week um, and, and so on. But a lot of private sector workers have been deemed essential also, whether they're working for private bus companies, driving people to work, whether they're working in, in food stores, uh, selling us the groceries. So it's been a different kind of split here. And the people who find themselves uh, less essential, if you like, are all those very high-paid accountants and, uh, and finance people um, who are working from home at the moment and not being regarded as essential. So it's a different kind of split. And I think it's you know, just, just quite telling to have it brought home to you um, how much you do depend on people you might normally not pay all that much attention to. You know, if you're preoccupied talking on the phone when you're doing your food shopping, um, it, it's uh, really opened people's eyes to uh, what we need for day-to-day life. Uh, as for winners and losers, um, you know, that's going to vary, isn't it? Because some private sector companies are actually doing uh, really well when others are uh, suffering badly. So airlines are doing terribly at the moment. But the big tech companies, because all of those of us who are working from home are using their, their platforms, they're, they're, they're thriving. Well, right. But, uh, I mean, just again using uh, America, which I understand better, of course. I mean, uh, just today we got the April jobs numbers and you have 20.5 million Americans unemployed. We've seen our unemployment rate in this country increase basically fourfold in the last six weeks. And it's not the accountants and the lawyers who, yes, they're not going into work. They're not necessarily deemed essential, but they're also not losing their jobs. It's people who um, you know, are in sectors that are shuttered that are losing their jobs and tend to be on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And so that presents a real real issue coming out of this if, to borrow a phrase, the rich uh, get richer because they have the ability to work remotely and those that do not, that tend to be uh, less rich, get poorer. I agree, and that's a real dilemma. And, you know, every country, not just America, is having this debate now. Whole sectors like um, hospitality, um, theaters, cinemas, and so on have, have been shut down and people are losing their jobs. People running small businesses, um, are seeing their businesses fold in, in these circumstances. And that's a terrible dilemma. People sometimes phrase it as getting the economy working, and I think that's a false way to present the trade-off because this is all about um, how do we make sure that um, people have a livelihood and a healthy, and there are some very um, severe dilemmas being exposed by this situation. So all governments now are thinking about, well, how do we uh, try to safeguard or return, restore as many of those jobs as we possibly can? This is this is not a good situation, and nobody's arguing that these are easy choices. Uh, the fact that different countries are making different choices says to me that there's no easy answer to this, and it's going to be a matter for debate and, and democratic choice in every, in every country. Uh, I found a recent CNBC uh, survey instructive in terms of, you know, look at who, you know, you, you need trust to affect leadership. And uh, the institution that has the most trust among Americans, who has the highest approval rating for the response to the pandemic, uh, even as uh, state and local governments have high approval ratings, but employers, 80 percent of those surveyed said their employers, they approve of the way their employers have handled the pandemic. 
And so it seems to me if that's the institution that has the most trust, then that's the institution that should be provided the most deference in terms of, uh, uh, well, reopening or not reopening and what reopening looks like and so forth. Maybe with consultation with healthcare professionals and public health professionals, public health experts. But but why not run it through the employers because they have that interpersonal relationship with their employees in a way that government commissars do not? And I think that's absolutely absolutely right and fine. If people trust employers, whichever institution they trust is clearly going to have um, the greatest ability to uh, implement whatever measures need to be introduced to keep people safe. And um, obviously, people in America think that their employers, um, you know, they have the same interests as as their employees do. They want to get back to work and have people earning money again. So that's fine. It will differ in different places. And, um, you know, I don't know, I've not seen similar polling here, but it might be the same or it might be different. But, you know, in a uh, capitalist economy that's operating effectively, employers and employees are on the same side. We have interests in common. How how do you think um, things will change in terms of the, as you term it in your piece uh, in Project Syndicate, the... um the spider's web of uh, economic interaction in uh, in the UK and in Europe coming out of this? It's very concerning. We've never seen uh, a stop, a, you know, full stop in economic activity of this kind. We don't know how long it will last, but it looks like being the steepest recession or even depression that any of us have experienced. And once that starts to feed on itself, it can, um, you know, disintegrate those connections and the trading links very quickly. So a lot of governments have done a lot to put money in people's pockets to see them through this um, this period to help employers stay in business. There's a limit to how long that can go on. And um, what happens next depends very much on what judgments governments and employers make about when they start um, opening things up again and, and uh, allowing people to earn their wages again. And then also what amount of confidence people have to go out and do the things that they were doing before. My my guess, and it's not really much more than an, uh, an informed guess, is that it will take quite a while, and we're in for a pretty rough recession. She is Diane Coyle. She's a professor of public policy at the University of Cambridge and author of Markets, State, and People, Economics for Public Policy. Professor Coyle, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Maybe I'll be fast as you. Maybe I'll break hearts too. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. After his shameful piece about Gretchen Whitmer, Tim Alberto over at Politico trying to make up for it with a, a profile on Joe Mackle uh, and his restaurant in, of all places, Heartland, Michigan, H-A-R-T, but nonetheless, talk about Dickensian. Uh, Joe Mackle's restaurant is called Mackle's Table and Taps. It's located in a strip mall in Heartland, Michigan, which is about 30 miles south of Flint. I always dreamed of taking my shot, Joe says, talking about um, the old uh, cliche, the happiest day for an owner is when they open a restaurant, the second happiest day is when they sell it. He emptied his life savings, drew down his 401k and other retirement funds, signed a 10-year loan from the landlord for the space, Roll of the dice and all in wager on himself, putting everything on the line in pursuit of a lifelong ambition. And it worked. Mackles was a boom from the day it opened in July of 2016. 
uh, Heartland, Michigan, which had long been a farm town, was growing into an upper-class suburb, so the timing appeared perfect. Joe and his wife Yvonne were still anxious, working uh, 18-hour days to grasp the success. It wasn't until December, when their accountant paid a visit to examine the books, that they realized they had uh, doubled the revenue done by the previous owner of the establishment. That's in December. And then, of course, comes the pandemic. The first thing you understand, I have to understand, Mackle explains, is that even the really good sit-down restaurants operate on 5 to 10% margins. And much of that comes from alcohol sales, from the table that orders an additional round, and from the people squeezed onto bar stools six inches apart from one another. In other words, these businesses don't have the room for losses to begin with. Right now, Joe has no customers at all. And uh, he took a hit around St. Patrick's Day. He uh, took a hit, sort of, kind of, sort of, in not being leveraged. He didn't have debt going into the uh, shutdown. That's the good news, which uh, provides him the possibility of surviving. But he's uh, sick of the way the discussion is proceeding nationally. This isn't a time for Democrats versus Republicans. It's a time for survival. He uh, adds, I don't see my customers as red or blue. I said the color green. I turned away candidates trying to host political events here. No, thank you. It's like hanging a Michigan flag out side or hanging a Sparty flag outside doesn't want to get in the middle of it just wants uh, some common sense policy making the uh, next date that circled on his calendar May 28th that's when the latest Gretchen Whitmer executive order expires and uh, he's uh, hoping that at least uh, half capacity service will be allowed that's the um, guarded optimism about that And he talks about the need to check his employees and so on and so forth. But he also says, what happens when one of our employees tests positive for COVID in a small town where everyone knows each other? Are we done then? As we roll into the weekend, maybe think about Joe Mackle and that restaurant and think about all that we know from all of the reading that you're doing and and hopefully sharing the, the information with people to bring people back from panic and to reason if uh, not for their own interests, for the interests of uh, intrepid entrepreneurs like Joe Mackle. Thanks for joining us on another edition of The Dan Prof Show. We appreciate you joining us all week, and we hope you have a great and safe and sane weekend. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.